the startups are mostly based in Ho Chi Minh City, but they have some operation in Hanoi. It's not largest uh, market for them. Ho Chi Minh City is the biggest business and economy for Vietnam. So people in Ho Chi Minh City have very different spending power and uh, habits comparing to people who, who live in Hanoi. So Hanoians are, are more conservative. They are less likely to spend money in the new company. But once they trust somebody, they, they will spend a lot. So very high lifetime value customer, but harder to acquire. So when you have a stronger base in Ho Chi Minh first, then use power and force to go up north. It's a bit harder for new players to enter Hanoi first. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Did you know that over 70% of B2B trades are conducted on credit terms? However, many suppliers struggle to support this, leading to lost business opportunities. Fluid offers instant B2B financing with one tap, seamlessly integrating with marketplaces and supplier platforms. This payment flexibility empowers buyers to secure their purchases on credit terms or installments. This results in increased basket sizes and influx of new buyers for suppliers. Fluid provides a great user experience and the ability to facilitate high-velocity trade. This differentiates Fluid from traditional digital lenders and invoice financing companies. Want to learn more? Get in touch with Tracy, Fluid's co-founder at T-R-A-S-Y at G-O-F-L-U-I-D dot I-O to learn more. Hey Valerie, welcome to my humble studio. Hi Jeremy, and I'm so honored to be the first guest in your studio. And to be honest, this is not humble. I have a podcast and I don't have a studio set up this neat. So yeah, it's not humble at all. Well, thank you very much for some of the technical dry run that we did just now. But excited to have you in person with 100% fast internet effectively between both of us this time around. Yeah. So I think what we want to talk about was follow up on our last conversation. A month ago, we were very excited about a lot of the semiconductor investments that were happening from the US to Vietnam. I think you want to share an update on that. So I sent you an article about how Intel is the withdrawing the further investment in Vietnam due to the unstable power supply chain and bureaucracy in terms of like permissions and licensings and construction permit in, in Vietnam. So I think the, the, the plan is they are using that investment to maybe shifting to other countries in the region such as Malaysia which already have a fab in Penang I, I believe yeah, yeah. so it's a bit uh, heartening yeah I mean I think they've always had plants and actually quite a good engineer base in Malaysia because Malaysia also actually has had that institutional memory and educational chain of engineering mm. for semiconductors because they've been around for decades now in that Penang so but I think it's interesting because obviously it's a, a good fraction of that investment we talked about but I guess it's still a net in flow of capital and 
anyway. It's just a fraction of it. Yeah, it's, it's still a net inflow, but I think we got to step up in yeah. terms of policy support and make the ease of doing business in Vietnam much more fluid. Recently, if you know of the Danish jewelry maker Pandora Group, they committed to build a new factory in Bingzhong province and the project would be 136 36 million. Yeah. And the factory will bring like between 7,000 to 9,000 new jobs. And this right. is what I've been mentioning with you about like new middle class, emerging middle class. The A lot of people's life will be improved. But the Danish group Pandora also recently announced that the plan might be delayed. And initially they will start, they plan to officially run the factory in 2025. But now it might be delayed to like late 2026. And the biggest reason is also the delay in getting construction permission from the government. So what's up with the delays in some of this permitting or process from your perspective? I think this is still the consequence of the real estate crackdown in Vietnam and the anti-corruption campaign last year. Even though it's getting out of the way, a lot of people in government are still being very conservative right now and granting new license or new permission, especially in the Ministry of Construction license, because uh, they're still waiting for things to stabilize. And I think that's why this year we have seen so many policy challenge from the construction side and real estate side of business. How else has the real estate kind of like pop? How has that changed, I think, a lot of the aspects of life in Vietnam? I think it's definitely poised to, to recover and to even prosper in the future, especially industrial real estate, because you have like many FDI projects coming from Singapore, Hong Kong, Danish, I mean Denmark, even Germany, US, getting in line to invest in Vietnam. Even Korean, like Samsung, LG, they want to build further, build more factories and invest further in Vietnam. So the moment for all of the real estate recovery is coming soon. But right now, the, the market is still being recovering from the crisis last year. Now, I think what I was also surprised by the announcement about why they're withdrawing the investment was that they mentioned the power supply being a problem. Could you yeah. share more about that? Yeah, so the power supply is it's a issue for the past few years because Vietnam power supply is owned by only one company, which is EVN. Uh, it's a state-owned company right. that controls the majority of like power supply in Vietnam, the company is not profitable, uh, even though they have like pretty much 100% market share for, for Vietnam's electric power supply. So I think because they have too big of a monopoly power, they did not manage resources well. And especially in the north, they, the north, northern region suffer more of an inconsistent power supply. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I was really surprised by that because I think a lot of people think of Vietnam as being very good at infrastructure building, so roads and so, so forth. And then what What's also interesting is that Indonesia on the other side of the ASEAN, they're doing well in terms of providing sufficient power, more than sufficient power, especially in the Jakarta and Bali kind of like dynamics there. So I was just kind of curious about what you think about that. I think we are, we still need a lot of infrastructure investment. Uh, still need to be a lot of like highway, road and bridges, yeah. especially in the southern region. Uh, right now, most of the infrastructure investment are focusing in the northern region because actually that's where the FDI is flowing into. So the southern region is being kind of the less favored region in terms of infrastructure development. 
So you went to airport. It's for see like biggest city in Vietnam. The airport is not up to its standard. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Any other kind of like interesting dynamics about how infrastructure is being spent or managed across Vietnam? I can only share that the northern region, especially like Hanoi and the surrounding provinces, are being more favored in terms of asset and investment yeah. allocation. So when you live in Vietnam, if you are in Hanoi Airport, like Noi Bai Airport, the road is entirely different comparing when you right. land in Tansania Airport going to Ho Chi Minh City Center. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's interesting because you said FDI, a lot of those you know investments are flowing to the north. Could you share a little bit more about what provinces they are and why they are flowing to those areas? So the top 10 city and provinces that are attracting FDI yeah. this year, Guangning, which is a northern yeah. province, very famous for mine and resources. One of the wealthiest provinces in Vietnam as well, Haiphong, which is another northern province. It's the largest port province in Vietnam. So a lot of trading happening here for like generation. Hanoi, which is the capital, also in the north. That's where I'm from. I was born and raised in Hanoi. And Ho Chi Minh City, that's the, in the south. Followed by Bac Giang, which is also another northern city, two hours away from Hanoi. So Bac Giang has been really open with opening new industrial zone. So Singapore has a project in Bac Giang, and the next one is Bing Zhuang. So Bing Zhuang is a southern province that Pandora committed to build a new factory. So in the previous provinces that I just mentioned, only two cities or province from the south. Right. I think what's interesting is that like you mentioned is that, yeah, Singapore has done these uh, economic zones, right? Yeah. Industrial parks in Vietnam. So when you think about these provinces, do they favor specific FDI types or specific clusters? I think Singapore is one of the largest industrial investors in Bingzhuang province. And now they are also one of the earliest investors in the Bakzang, the northern area as, as well. So they, I think they have already a strong base in the southern mm -hmm. region of, of Bingzhuang. And now they are moving up north. Gotcha. Yeah. So if someone wanted to do a, I guess, a large FDI investment. How should they think about it? Should they invest in the north, in the south, specific province? How should they think about where to invest? I think have to look at the openness of the government or policy makers in that province. Secondly, looking at the demographic, right? I think the northern region have more human resources for now. You don't have to shuckle as hard to recruit laborers into your company. So that's why there are more projects being done in the north. So I think two biggest factors are government policy and human resources. So I think what's been interesting is you mentioned human capital availability, right? So I think this is an interesting dynamic where unemployment is not high, it's low in Vietnam. But also there's so many jobs that seem to be created. We talk about upskilling uh, and changing job types in the future as well. There was an article by SCMP, the newspaper based up Hong Kong, saying that there's the trend in China called Tan Ping, which is kind of like lying flat, which is the Chinese version of slacking or yeah. coasting. So this trend of supposedly youth kind of like taking a step back from being productive citizens and choosing to kind of like really focus on themselves and kind of like the story of you know, 1960s in America, like tune in and drop out dynamic. So they're saying that Vietnam now has this phenomenon and I'm not sure if that, how valid you think that is. I strongly disagree with the uh, article. If you look at PISA score, which is the test that measure like math and English score of students. Actually, in, in ASEAN, Vietnam is the second highest PISA score just after Singapore. In all the country, if you look at the, the PISA score of the entire world, we are in a bubble of high PISA score, but we have like lower GDP per capita comparing to Singapore or like South Korea, China, Japan. They also have high PISA score 
but also high GDP per capita. So we are the only exception here. And actually, Vietnamese human resources, Vietnamese youth is very competitive, very aggressive. I'm struggling to retain and hire talents here in Vietnam because they always going after the next and better opportunity. So there's no guarantee like I can I, I can hire a really good talent right now, but the next day they might have very attractive offer from MBB or another large like IB investment banking firm because they are so like hungry and so ambitious. They're always looking out for the next like better opportunity. Yeah. And actually a lot of Gen Z, like mm. younger Vietnamese, they are not happy with just one job. Like right. they have this day job working in, in corporate, but at night they are doing like two, three more side hustles. Like this shirt, for example, is made by a, a late young lady. She's only 23 years old. In, in, in her day job is working for a corporate, Vietnamese corporate. Her night job, she's working on two fashion brands. Like one fashion brand is this kind of office look. Yeah. And the second fashion brand is athleisure, yeah. more mass market look. Yeah. Yeah, and she's 23 years old. Wow. So so I, I disagree that we have that phenomenon. Yeah. I, I don't know where the writer is coming from. I think maybe what the writer was, I mean, because they're also writing from China, right, in Hong Kong, was that I think they were implying that Vietnam and China has a very strong cultural linkage in terms of internet memes or stuff like that. So I think they're just saying that there's a trend is moving. But like you, I kind of feel like it's not just about Vietnam, right? But I think in China, youth unemployment is almost effectively 50% based on the last statistics. So obviously, if you're unemployed <laughs> and there's not enough good jobs, then yeah, I think it's quite easy to have a fad that is called like, supposedly like you're lying flat, you're not working. But you're not working because there's no jobs anyway. So it's mm-hmm. a bit of a circular loop, right? Where it's like there are no good jobs, so you don't want to work and you don't want to work in this I mean to me it almost feels like a way to if I take a giant step back it's like blaming you for wanting to lie down and tune and drop out doesn't feel like a very solvable issue I think having good jobs is the way to solve it because I think everybody wants to work everybody wants to make money mm-hmm. everybody wants to build a family everybody wants to buy a home right so I just feel like it's a little bit like I don't know what's the word we're looking at the second or third order effect of a youth unemployment crisis and then we're saying like oh these people are lazy but you're like yeah, yeah but... you only look at you know, a small fraction yeah exactly a small yeah. fraction of all the people and there's fraction people are like justifiable in the sense that self-justifying yeah. why they're tuning out because the job availability is not great. But I think what's interesting is that I think Vietnam obviously is taking a lot from the Chinese model, right? Historically, in terms of the education focus, but also some of the industrial value chain build out as well, right? And of course, we see a lot of the Chinese manufacturers also setting up shop in Vietnam as well as part of the global China's plus one, mm-hmm. so so forth. So what do you think, are there any specific, I think, differences that you think Vietnam is doing that's different from the way China is approaching development? In terms of talents and yeah, in terms of talent or in terms of industrial choice. Yeah, I think in terms of talents, we are not as aggressive. In ter- like for China right now, right? They shut down the whole ed tech industry. Yeah. They don't even, I feel like they don't even encourage students to kind of learn foreign language yeah. or exploring international right. culture or study abroad. But Vietnam is pretty much encouraging younger students to exchange with other universities, learning different like languages. I mean, I my my major back in high school was French. So we still really promote learning about all the culture, all the languages. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a big shame, right? Because education tech is also, it's not just about tech, right? It's also a way for parents who want the best for their children. They're kind of like voting with their dollars, but also voting with the child's time and their own time. But what do you think the future is going to be, right? So in terms of like learning languages, learning computer coding. So I think it's kind of weird <laughs> to us. I mean, state education is at minimum designed to be lowest common denominator because you want everybody to be 
educated, but it, it's not designed to be personalized for every child, right? Because that's mm-hmm. bonkers and crazy expensive. If you want to do it, so I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing China did. Honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk about the Vietnam education tech market. I mean, obviously, it's quite hot. A lot of people focus on building. I recently had a presentation from Marathon Education. They're looking to build a university, right? Yeah. As well in Vietnam and even regionally, they announced that at the Bali Education Tech Conference. So love to hear your point of view. Yeah. So actually, I help Marathon Education recruit for their first university hire. Right. Spencer. Did you yeah. meet with Spencer? I haven't met Spencer. Yeah. You maybe get him on the pod at some point. Yeah. Uh, but I met Spencer when he was in Fulbright University. Yeah. He left and then I connect the dot and I told Duke, the mm. founder of Marathon Education, to convince Spencer to join force. Yeah, I'm really excited ab- yeah. about what Duke is building, the university vision. Because again, I, I shared last time, I think the K-12 is getting enough yeah. investment and traction. The, what's beyond K-12, university, mm. post-grad, upskilling and enrichment learning after graduation is missing. So I'm excited about that gap. I think this year, a lot of deals activity this year in Vietnam are in EdTech. Not so much of new company, pre seed You probably know of those companies before, but this year, I'm, I'm sure EdTech is the industry that received largest amount of funding in Vietnam. Yeah. I think a lot of folks are interested in the space because it feels good, does a good social purpose, it helps society go along, it builds the economy over time. So yeah, I think a lot of interesting in education tech. Any specific trends or companies you're excited about in education tech? I know last time around that you were very bullish about adult learning and you promised to announce it eventually. I don't know if you can announce it yet. I can't announce yet. Yeah. I'm still working on it. But yeah, it's <laughs> it's an adult learning space. Okay, all right. Yeah. What else is there? Yeah. Yeah. Any other trends that you like or in education tech? I think just start up that improve productivity, the Vietnamese human workforce. Yeah. Yeah. So like HR tech. Yeah. Yeah. So I think one interesting part is that we were talking about is we were looking at an article recently about the rise of pre-seed and seed funds, kind of like a landscape view across globally, but also regionally as well. So do you you have any thoughts about that? I think globally, pre-seed and seed fund are rising. Yeah. Uh, because it's hard, getting harder and harder to raise a huge growth in late stage fund because the returns are not being shown there. If you look at recent Instacart IPO, for example, the only investor that make, made money from the Instacart IPO yeah. is the seed and Syria investor. Yeah. So it's, it's not about like, it's a trend, but yeah. I think mainly because the late stage fund right now are right. getting harder to raise. And if you read recently, Kotu just an, raised a new fund and they have to cut management fee or the ex- Existing LPs don't have to pay management fee yeah. for this new fund. Yeah. And that's why we see more pre and seed because that's that's where the opportunity is. That's where you can show the return and it's less challenging to, to raise a pre fund comparing to a growth and late-stage fund. Yeah. yeah. I think about the Instacart, yeah, I think Sequoia invested three times in yeah. Instacart and the first check made a lot of money. Second check was like, eh. The third one, they lost money versus especially that of the S&P 500, right? If it was mm. an index fund as well. So I think it was an interesting set of uh, numbers to look at. What do you think about the context of seed and pre-seed in the context of Southeast Asia and maybe Vietnam? Yeah, so pre-seed in Vietnam in particular being much, I think much needed because the past two year, one year and a half, most investment activity in Vietnam, I think are VC funds investing in their existing portfolio companies. So they are helping their portfolio companies first before investing in newer companies. So there's very little of you pre-seed seed fund who are willing to invest in very right. young, like less than one year old company. 
which is why I enjoy quite a good quality of deal flows and also very attractive valuation being one of the few pre-seed funds in Vietnam right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. How do you cover both Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City? Actually, the startups are mostly based in Ho Chi Minh City, but they have some operation in Hanoi. It's not larger uh, market for them. What's the difference? Why is there a difference? So Ho Chi Minh City is the always the biggest business and economy hub for Vietnam. So people in Ho Chi Minh City have very different spending power and uh, habits comparing yeah. to people who, who live in Hanoi. So Hanoians are, are more conservative and they less they are less likely to spend money in the new company. But once they trust somebody, they, they will spend a lot. So very high lifetime value customer, but harder to acquire. So when you have a stronger base in Ho Chi Minh first, then use that power and force to go up north. But yeah, it's a bit harder for new players to enter Hanoi first. Yeah. I think in terms of market expansion, how do Vietnamese companies think about expansion? I know I was at a Cambodia conference recently in technology and they said that there's a lot of Vietnamese companies who move from Vietnam and expand to Cambodia, for example. Is that a common corridor or what? how would you see Vietnamese companies? So you said one is from Ho Chi Minh City from the south to north. How else do they expand? Yeah, if you look at traditional company, yeah. like much larger established company, yeah. uh, Cambodia and Laos are yeah. the first market and, and it's usually not that not that challenging yeah. for them to enter because yeah. there are already a lot of Vietnamese business owners yeah. in Cambodia and Laos. Yeah, already, yeah. And for example, like rubber industry, I, I'm pretty sure, and even agriculture, I'm pretty sure a lot of rubber plantation owners in Cambodia mm. actually Vietnamese. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I heard also the recycling industry in Cambodia also is very Vietnamese. Yeah, very well. Vietnamese. I can yeah. go to Cambodia and, and Laos and find yeah. me and pho and speak <laughs> Vietnamese. Yeah. That's that's the test yeah. to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what's interesting is that I think there's a question which is like how culturally fluent are the Vietnamese in, in expanding to the rest of Southeast Asia, right? So how comfortable are the Vietnamese expanding to Indonesia, to the Philippines, to Singapore, to Malaysia, to Thailand? How do you think about that? Yeah, this is another kind of, I, I guess, like challenge because yeah. we only starting to expand regionally recently. Right. And uh, for example, the corporate like mobile world, they actually shut down the Cambodian expansion. They shut down the Cambodia store and now they're pivoting to Indonesia. So they're right. partner, partnering with an Indonesian local partner to open a new like a mobile world store mm. in Jakarta. Will they succeed? I'm not sure. They just yeah. partner like late last year, late yeah. 2022. And yeah. I think opening like this year. Yeah. So too early to tell. Yeah. This is going to be the first generation of entrepreneurs who are expanding globally. Yeah. And if you look at VinFast, the chairman mindset is pretty much like we we will go hard or go home. So <laughs> he committed to invest yeah. in Indonesia. So he want to sell it to... In I think he already have a country manager in Indonesia, India, Europe for and, and US, of course. Wrapping things up here, any other differences that you see between the North and the South or within provinces that you think are important for people to think about? I think most importantly is the behavior of the two. If you want to expand to Vietnam, then you should observe those differences. Yeah, Test it out yeah. on both sides. Yeah. But I think what I find most interesting is that the way you say it, it's like the South is more entrepreneurial, more startups, but the FDI is moving to the North where there's better infrastructure, more human capital. So it's quite interesting. So long-term goal is we, the, the economic development will be even out yeah. between the two. Right. I mean, the whole across region right. of Vietnam. So if you look at the Bain report yeah. recently, the e 
e-economy in South Asia. So right now, digital economy of Vietnam is 30 billion, which is less than 10% of Vietnam GDP. But actually, yeah. our government goal is to get it to 20% of our GDP by 2025 and even 30% in the next 10 years. Yeah. So there's huge opportunity for tech startups to tackle on. and But we need the government to, to be more open-minded and have a friendlier policy as well. Yeah. On that note, thank you so much. I'd love to summarize the three big takeaways. First of all, thank you so much for sharing uh, about the recent update by Intel to withdraw its investment plan in uh, Vietnam. But I thought it was interesting to dissect a little bit about the reasons why. So we talk about policy differences uh, that's there in terms of the slowdown due to real estate bust, but also due to the power and infrastructure availability that's available. So I thought it was a very interesting case study about something that happened, but actually providing a lot more color from an insider's perspective and local's perspective about why it actually happened. Secondly, thank you so much for sharing about human capability, availability across different regions at a provincial level, but also talking about why FDI is flowing, uh, where it's flowing more to the north. But also we talk about some of the regional differences, which I think even for myself is new. And lastly, thanks so much for sharing about what you're seeing in the education space about the next generation of youth. We both don't believe in Tanping that's happening by SEMP. So I guess uh, we're on a record for disagreeing with them. But we believe that I think there's a lot of hunger by the youth to learn and study. I think this also shows up in the education tech sector as well. Yeah. On that note, thank you so much, Valerie. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.